You're listening to the Decidedly Podcast. This episode includes topics of a sensitive nature. If you or someone you love is experiencing thoughts of suicide, please seek help. You can do so by calling 1-800-273-8255 or texting HOME to 741-741. That's all for now. Let's get into the episode. I'm Morgan McKittrick, your producer, and this is Decidedly. So before I came to your office, I was at the gym. I was on one of the treadmills. And I know. That's my thing. That's what I think. All right. So here's the thing, though. Nobody was on the treadmills. I'm the only guy. I'm the Uh only guy on the treadmills. There's about 10 of them in a row, right? Yeah. And so I'm on one. I'm on the one second to the end. There's 10. I'm on number nine. Dude comes up. Which one do you think he gets in? No, he just yes. next to you. Next to me, number 10. He's let's a, see, let me, here, I've got a very important question for you. All right. So you're saying you're alone. I'm alone. There's all these treadmills. All the treadmills. Nobody else is in any of the treadmills. No, they're all empty. There's 10 treadmills. He picks the one right next to you. Yes. Along where your shorts. <laughs> <laughs> you, th- you think that's what it was? I mean, you, th- you, think, you think this guy was hitting on me? Were you asking for it? No. <laughs> Do not, do not shame me like that. Do not, victim blame. Yeah, don't, don't victim blame me. So I, you know how you do, you, you kind of look at the guy. I look over to my right at the guy. You do one of these. Like, and then, yeah. no, I, I looked at him, but then I did this. I looked to my left to all <laughs> the empty ones. <laughs> I kind of look you know, as if to say, could have picked one through eight, dude. Uh, one through seven, actually, I would have been better. And you ever, all right, so in our office building, we've got three urinals in the bathroom. We had to teach a guy, because some people don't know this. We had to teach a guy that, all right, if there's three empty urinals, you know this, there's A, B, and C. Of course I know which, this. which one do you pick? If there's three. They're, they're empty. A, B, which one do yeah, you pick? they're all three empty. A or C. A or C. Doesn't Absolutely. Matter. Yeah. Right? Not B. Not B. So this guy in our office, he comes in, he picks B. I'm like, dude, what? So I just waited. I just went. <laughs> Stood there behind him looking Stood at your I'm like, hey, you know, let me teach you a man thing you sh- that, you know, nobody ever taught you, apparently. When you come to an empty bathroom with three stalls, you pick A or C. We always leave B empty. B is never to be used. One time we were <laughs> there's another there's another unspoken male rule, which is if you see someone you know in the restroom, you don't talk to them in the restroom. No, no. I and I remember one time I tell this story to people that to particularly like women don't believe this. One time I, I was in public, this was I was in like college and I saw you and I didn't expect to see you. And we both looked at each other. And just kept doing our business, got out of the restroom. We're like, oh, hey, <laughs> you don't talk in the restroom. You don't stand next to another man while he's peeing. No, you, you don't, don't get on a treadmill next to someone. You don't get on the treadmill next to somebody. Here's another one. All right. Since all right. we're talking about decisions inside there, if you're in the stall, all right, there's a stall and you're, you're, you're sitting, you're, you're in the, yeah, whatever you're doing in the stall, you're in the stall, okay. right? Yeah. Somebody comes in, they go, the, they go to the restroom, they're washing their hands. 
don't come out of that stall. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you wait. You, you wait, wait till they're done. You wait. Wait they, till they're done. Till they clear the area, right? Then you can exit. Then you get out on your own, right? You, you, that walk that of shame. One, you're coming out of there. That one's not. That one I think is more for us. You know, no, it, I mean, if if I'm washing my hands, you want to come out. That's on you, but it's weird. It is awkward. I want my. Then I get a, especially if there's one sink, and then you just got to stand there behind the guy while you're just waiting. Kind of don't touch no. the thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it's awkward. That's yeah, awkward. Well, you know, perhaps I'm perhaps, a, I'm interested to see how you say this into you could, anything. Um, you could be more empathetic towards those who don't know the uh-huh. rules of the male race. There you go. And lucky for you. We've got an expert on empathy on the podcast today. David Waldy is a life and business strategist, personal coach, speaker, and author who empowers entrepreneurs and leaders to get out of their own way and fix what's out of alignment in their leadership. He uh, he has a, a really compelling story, man. After nearly taking his own life and experiencing a divine wake-up call, David left his corporate career to reinvent himself, rebuild his family, and redefine what was possible in his personal and professional life. He now spends his time empowering leaders through his philosophy of fierce empathy, which enables us to look in the mirror, face the facts, and confront the challenges that hold us back from success, fulfillment, and aligned abundance. He's worked with thousands of entrepreneurs and leaders from over 40 countries and shared stages with influencers like Tony Robbins and Russell Brunson. We talked about a lot with David. What a great guy. We just, we think about life in business the same way. So it was really cool to spend some time with him. We discussed how even the right decision can result in negative consequences. Victimhood may be appealing, but it makes you weak. We have to be willing to wrestle in the darkness. Um, We talked about defining who you want to become before deciding how to get there and rewiring your brain for your alter ego until you believe it about yourself. Stick around. You may learn something. My name's Sager Smith. As always, I'm with my dad, Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly. David, I am so glad you're here. Oh, thanks, Sanger. I'm excited to be here, yeah, man. Good to see you, David. Hey, yeah, Sean. I, uh, I knew we would get along, and then you show up with the 12-point buck right over your shoulder yeah. we'll have to talk about that we'll have to <laughs> the, the whole aesthetic you've got going on in that room is like it's speaking to me no I the foggy it. mountain scenes uh you know i don't know that it's done it's with a white tail yeah there you are <laughs> well yeah david you, you know in addition to i guess killing bucks you're, you're killing it with being empathetic being fierce so <laughs> take me back to how how you got into coaching business and uh yeah, killing it the way you're doing. So getting into coaching, it was actually, uh, I kind of got my butt kicked by a mentor of mine and I was working in a corporate nine to five. I had done really well in my career, did corporate sales. And uh, there was a conversation we had. It was one day she took me to this little Mediterranean restaurant and she had actually was putting me through a coaching program. She was developing for a, um, a, a fortune 100 company, which was really cool. And she came to me and she said, Hey, this is going to be a $300,000 coaching program. I need five case studies. And so first of all, when she said that, I was like, I- I'm sorry, people pay what for coaching? <laughs> and uh, she, uh, um, she said, I need five Nobody's case studies. Nobody's paying me $300,000. <laughs> right. 
She said, I need five case studies and I would love for you to be one of those case studies. We're going to work together for a series of months. I'm going to take you through the process because I have to have these case studies to take it to the board of directors for approval. I was like, are you serious? I, I would be honored to. And so we're sitting at this little Mediterranean restaurant eating shawarma and a bunch of food I can't pronounce. And I, it was a very tough season for me. I had gone through some very painful things at corporate betrayal. My wife and I had just recently gone through a miscarriage, uh, $40,000 pay cut. I was in a very dark season. And uh, she looked at me and she said, uh, she had a couple of questions. Number one, she said, David, I don't think you realize that the skill set that you've developed and how you approach sales and marketing and business and just interacting with people, there's like nothing like it in, in the corporate world. I'm like, what are you talking about? And she's like, you're incredible at sales. Like, and from my background, I've been in sales my entire career, but I never, I had never felt like I was really good at sales. She's like, look at your numbers. Look at the numbers. Top 1% producer in this $400 million a year company. I'm like, okay, maybe I guess I'm okay at sales. She says, so you don't understand, like, you don't understand this. I'm like, I obviously, I don't understand this. She said, what you do and how you help your team and how you approach customers and how you interact in a business context, you lead with empathy. You lead with questions. You lead with seeking to understand and, and making sure that what you're providing is the best fit. Why don't you take this into the marketplace and coach and train and teach other people how to do this? And instead of being stuck where you're at, number one, hating your job, working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, uh, and dealing with all the stuff that I was dealing with. And so she kind of gave me my first sh shove out the door of saying, you should entertain this. And that was, that was about five years ago. And it was uh, four or five years ago. And that's when it all started. I was like, okay, maybe I can help people. And I always have loved working with humans. I love solving problems and asking questions. And so that was kind of my introduction. And I, uh, I started cutting my teeth in the coaching world, learning about it. And here we are today. <laughs> That's so fascinating. She was able to pick up on exactly what you were doing and why it was valuable and it was going right over your head. Exactly. That's, that's so cool. <laughs> you, you think it was just it just coming naturally to you and you had to figure out a way to uh, systematize it? or Yeah, that was a big part of it is that was her first assignment. She's like, you need to systematize this. You need to actually map out like from point A, like a through Z, what is your process? Like what is your flow? How do you approach mm -hmm. things? Now on the, on the relational side, I've always been very relational. Uh, I know my, my top, top five strengths of taking all the personality tests, the DISC assessment, Myers-Briggs and everything like that. And so I've always been someone that loves discipleship and ministry. I almost became a pastor, actually. So I was all about relationships and training and working with people and helping create community and camaraderie and ach achieving, accomplishing goals together. And so coaching was more a natural thing uh, early on, but I had to develop a very different skill set. I had to understand how to create an environment where people did feel seen, heard, and understood, but also I could kick them in the ass when they needed it in the right way, in a way that was actually helping them move forward. But I started to discover that only works in, a, in a, an environment of accountability and trust, where you really trust the heart of the person, because you can't force it on people that don't want it. Did, did you find that there were differences that you had to approach when you moved into coaching different from the skill set of being a top sales guy? You know, a top sales guy, you're trying <laughs> to convince people to do something. Right. I mean, you, you're, you're trying to persuade them to do something. Whereas in yep. coaching, you really tried to, to be more empathetic and listen to what is it that you want to do. Right. Yeah. It was, it's funny you mentioned this. I was literally writing a post about this this morning is that 
the skill sets, not only for developing in business, like building a business are entirely different if you're going to actually grow a viable business, but specifically in coaching, that the goal in coaching and how I've come to understand it and how I try and operate, my goal is not to make people what I think they should be. My goal is to help them extract already what's within them that they can't currently see yet. So it's almost like a prophetic type of thing. It's something that I'm seeing that, that which doesn't exist yet, helping them make it manifest or create it in their life by helping them identify who they are, who they're not, and who they want to become. And then my job is to help them by asking questions to, to bring them to a place of realization rather than me just telling like, go do this and do this and do this and do this. It's not about me trying to make people into who I think that they should be. It's trying to help people become more of who they've always wanted to be. But maybe never given themselves permission to be. I, I have found that in the, in the coaching work that I do is shifting from being in a position my whole career to deciding things and saying, okay, this is what we should do and answering issues and solving problems. And in coaching, really being more in a position to listen and say, yeah. okay, what is it that you're wanting to do? And not always agreeing with the direction or the decision that they're wanting to make, but to say, all yeah. right, how do we, how do we make that effective? If this is what you're wanting to do, yeah. Um, yeah. let me ask you some questions to make sure you you really want to do that. That that's the best decision based on your values and 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 so forth. You had blown by something a minute ago. And I want to go back uh -oh. to you <laughs> talked about. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to let you get by with it. You you talked about how you were in corporate sales and uh -huh. uh, being successful at that. And you mentioned there was a, a corporate betrayal and you, you kind of ran past that. Yeah. Tell me more about that story. So it was a very challenging situation. Uh, the company I'd been working for, uh, I won't mention the name just for, for privacy, but the company I was working for at the time had brought in a new partner, new owner. And there started being some things going on behind the scenes that, uh, that I heard about from the mouths of different individuals at the owner operator level. And the owner that had been there previously, I had developed a tremendous relationship with over the years. I went to that individual and told them what was going on. And it backfired big time. Mm. I tried to be honest about these things that I felt like were unethical, were somewhat immoral, like 100% not okay inside of a business context. And I brought them to this individual's attention saying, I... I think there's a lot of stuff here that needs to be addressed and I don't know who to go to because the individual that had come in, that secondary partner, that owner had become my boss. So what do you do when your boss is the person who's doing the stuff that is not okay? Who do you go to, right? Especially if there's no one above them. So I was in a unique position that I went to the other partner and it ended up getting completely twisted around and put back on me. I, I literally was the fall guy for everything that happened. Uh, $40,000 pay cut. I got transitioned out of my position into a role that I did not want. Uh, all of my commission was stripped. I was no longer able to, to make any commission. And I was uh, still overseeing a team that was generating millions and millions of dollars a year in sales. But the problem with it was I had ended up in, it, you've pro we've probably all seen the movies. And for anyone listening, if you can imagine that the giant boardroom, right? With the massive table in the middle, the big yeah. dogs on one side and I'm the little guy on the other side. Down at the way and, other end. Yes, I've seen. <laughs> right. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. That's exactly what happened. You know, the stale coffee stain smell coming from the floor uh, from previous meetings and, and what ended up, it was a very, very 
painful meeting because not only was I, I was cursed at, I was literally told that my entire team was disposable. The only reason that I was there was because I was too much of a financial asset to lose and they did not have someone to replace me. So the only reason that I wasn't mm. getting fired. They said was that directly was, to you? They said that directly to me. I was too much of a Whoa. financial asset to lose. And the reason it was so painful is because at that time I was making probably close to $140,000, $150,000 a year. And I was terrified. I mean, I'm in my, my, my mid-20s, uh-huh. right? Mid to late 20s. From the outside looking in, I'd made it. I got the glass corner office. I got the company yeah. car. I got the company credit card. I'm making over six figures. I'm winning. Except inside, there were so many things that were going on. Not only that, but I was 60 pounds heavier than I am right now. I was dealing with suicidal ideation, constant panic attacks, anxiety attacks. I hated what I saw in the mirror. I was failing as a husband. I was failing as a father. There were so many layers that went into this. So this was kind of like this final straw situation sitting in this boardroom where I already feel like I'm failing in every area of life, but everyone on the outside looking in saying, he's winning. Look at Waldy. He's winning. Yeah. And I felt like a hypocrite. I felt like a fraud. I felt like a terrible human being. So to have them say that in the midst of everything else I was 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 dealing with. Again, this was about three months after my wife and I had gone through a miscarriage. They'd already gone through this entire process of trying to navigate all of this change. And I was scared. I was terrified. Everything in me wanted to walk away. But in my head, I'm thinking, I can't walk away from this and just go replace a six-figure job overnight. No. So I've got to continue to tough this out. And so the timing for that mentor that I had, she's a friend that I've gone to church with for a long time. But um, the long and short of it was very shortly thereafter. This uh, Fast forward, that was probably February, March. Um, it was actually 2018. In April of 2018, that same month, um, I ended up at home alone, standing in front of the mirror with a Glock in my hand. And I was done. I was done. Everything that everyone had ever told me I was supposed to achieve in life had achieved and there was no fulfillment. There was no joy. There was no, I just felt like I was failing on every single front. And the hard part about this though, Sanger and, and Sean through this process is that I'm active in church. I'm reading my Bible. I'm leading worship. I'm I'm listening to every podcast. I'm reading every book on leadership, on personal development. Like all of my spare time is working on myself, trying to get better and better and better until I end up in front of the mirror and I'm done. And in that moment, what I heard was, was very, very clear to me. There was a couple of things that I heard that I felt like were the voice of God. I heard and this is why I was so excited about this podcast. We'll talk about this in a second. You get to decide, you get to commit, and you get to become. I am with you and I am for you, but I can't fix this. You have to put in the work required. And it was in that moment, like I I remember setting the gun down and breaking hating what I saw in the mirror. I have a picture of it actually up on my website. I have a picture that I took right after this happened because something inside of me desperately believed that maybe one day, if I did make it through, my story would somehow be able to help save someone else who was just struggling with their decisions and what to do and feeling like they're up against a a, a rock in a hard place. And in that moment, I realized that I had been blaming life and God 
I had been living in this victimhood mentality. I wasn't taking ownership of my life. And I had just followed the American dream only to wake up one day and realize it had become a complete and total nightmare. And I felt like I had been lied to. And that was the day that I started to take back my family. I started to reclaim my health. I started to rediscover who I am. And that process led me into, I mean, really the next four to five years to where we are today of just completely changing every single aspect of my life. I love how comfortable you are sharing that. You know, we, there's so much subtext in each of our lives that underrides the decisions that we make. And so outside looking in, it's hard to see how, why would a guy with, you know, beautiful wife and kids and nice job and what do you mean he hates his job? He, he, he doesn't just quit. Well, when you feel like crap, well, yeah. it, it, that doesn't seem like a very logical option. Um, it makes sense. It makes sense that you would feel stuck. Uh, hey, maybe you could have gone out and gotten a, 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 a job very easily, but you're not going to feel that way when nothing else is going well. Um, yeah. And clinging on to the the areas of life where we are winning, even though maybe they're not healthy for us anymore. Like so much of us just want to be be seen and and be recognized for succeeding in something. And it's like if we find that, we might we might <laughs> rip it to death, no matter how bad it burns our hand, right? Yeah. Um, but you're so open with and so comfortable being vulnerable. It's really like transformative for your message, and it is impacting people because. Most, I feel like most people are, are still, we've made a lot of progress as a society of being comfortable sharing our emotions publicly, particularly mental health issues. Um, but it's still, we're still not where we need to be. You know, we're still not where we need to be. The best part of your message that really, really resonates with me is that you do get to decide. And that is the scariest and most freeing message in existence is you yeah. get to decide. It's all up to you. Now, that, the yeah. scary part is it's all up to you. The best part is it's all up to you, man. Right. Like it, it's, it's all in your hands. And I think that our popular culture really rejects that message. And we're going through um, what, what I hope is a, a, a change in the public attitude, right? Man. Right now, the, the victim mentality is pushed by corporations. It's pushed by politicians. It's pushed by our musicians it's pushed by everybody because it's so easy and comforting and when we it, live in a society and in a culture that's already um saturated with comfort then yeah. the mindset of well you know well I'm, I'm broken i'm a victim i can't help this it's somebody else's fault is very very appealing and when somebody comes along and says hey it, it it's actually in your hands mm -hmm. that gets a lot of pushback because yeah. that would cause me as someone who is wallowing in my own self-pity to acknowledge all of this past, <laughs> all of this, this past pain was avoidable. Right. And that's not a good feeling, but when it comes out of the mouth of someone who can say, Hey, I've been there, then I think it has a better chance of being listened to. My, my hope is that I like the, the biggest thing and, and Sean, I'll let you go right after this thing or what you just mentioned is that the, that day, you, you hit it spot on the head is that I had to learn to take ownership without internalizing shame and guilt and regret. Yeah. Which is the biggest thing I think that people struggle with is the fear. They're like, I don't want to, I don't want to, to wrestle. Like Brene Brown has a great word she uses is rumbling with vulnerability. 
is that I don't, I don't want to rumble with my shame and my guilt. I don't want to get into the arena and have to wrestle with that. And what I realize is that it, you, there's, there's a great scene in, in Star Wars where Luke is, is trying to be, you know, we, we've, Hopefully everybody's seen it, but where Yoda is like training like don't, him and don't, he has- ruin, don't ruin it for me. <laughs> <laughs> but he has to go into this dark tunnel underneath this tree and he doesn't want to, but it he he ends up going into the darkness in order to wrestle with the stuff that's really affecting him inside. And sometimes we have to be willing to wrestle with that darkness and take ownership of the fact that, yes, there are things that have happened to us that were outside of our control. But we can blame, we can criticize, we can live as victims, or we can recognize that you're right. We have a decision and when we can take ownership of those decisions, but not slip into the guilt and the shame and the regret, that emotion that causes so much dysregulation, we can then walk out of that darkness empowered to become who we want to be. So Sean, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with you, Sanger, that that the the victim mentality and sort of looking at that is is very digestible in our in our culture right now it's people want it because it it cuts against this issue of personal responsibility and decision making to say these things are forced upon me and i don't have a choice which is really just the opposite that we decide how we're going to react to to yeah. all of these things uh in, in our lives and david in your in your story and you know thank god you know literally that uh that you you made the decision you you did not to not to complete that but do you remember when you were coming out of that what your first thoughts were what your first decision was i do my first my first decision was i need help i decided to get help i knew that i couldn't do it on my own because i didn't know what to do i knew that everything i had tried to do and everything that i had like focused my effort and intention and energy on uh, I, I've obsessively read since I was a teenager. I had all the knowledge. I had all the, I, I, I all the books, all the podcasts, all, all the TEDx talks, all the conferences, all of the stuff. We can have so much knowledge and, and awareness that's very different than taking action. And so I remember the first decision I had to make was I need someone to help me. And so I decided to actively pursue that help. And that's when I really, really started to understand more about the world of coaching and consulting and mentorship and masterminds and workshops and conferences and why people invest so much money and so much time and so much energy into getting support and solutions from outside sources rather than just looking within, because I believe we do all carry it within, but outside perspective is invaluable. And so that decide, commit, become that I heard became kind of that slogan for me is I, the, the first decision was I need to, I had to pursue someone to help. I knew I needed to do that, but I also knew that the one thing that I had never given myself permission to do, and this came out of that conversation with my mentor at that little Mediterranean restaurant. She asked me a question that completely caught me off guard. My entire life, I'd always heard the question, what do you want to do with your life? Or what do you do? Right? What do you do? When you're a kid, what do you want to do when you grow up? If <laughs> it she asked me, she said, David, who do you want to become? And I didn't have an answer, guys. I had no answer. I was like, um, I, I, I don't, I don't really know how to answer that. Um, and she let me sit with her for a minute and she said, well, let's, let's do this. If you could think about anyone past, present or future, 
who would you want to model or emulate? Someone whose life that you look at and you say, hey, I'd like to recreate that to some degree. And uh, of course I said, I said, Jesus. And she laughed and said, wrong answer. You can't say Jesus. <laughs> so <laughs> I was a like, cheat. That's, okay, a cheat that answer. <laughs> that's a cheat answer. <laughs> and so, um, so I looked at her and I said, well, I, I guess to some degree, I, I really have, tr- you know, tremendous respect for the impact that, that Tony Robbins has had. Now, probably not use as many F words. Uh, I don't want to travel as much as him, but the fact that he's willing and able to stand in front of people and to help them get breakthroughs, I was like, I really, really um, respect that. So I I feel like I'd want to become something like that. And that process of starting, like making the decision to define who I wanted to become was one of the most painful, challenging things because I didn't believe, Sanger and Sean, I didn't believe I had permission to do that. My background, I come from a very, you know, uh, evangelical Christian background. My conditioning was God determines who you are. He says who you are. You have to find your calling. You have to find your purpose. He's hidden it somewhere for you. And your number one job is to become exactly who God says you're supposed to be. And I lived my whole life being like, God, why don't you tell me who I'm supposed to be? That'd be freaking great because then I'd know what I'm supposed yeah, to do. Let me know. I'm <laughs> talking to you every night. <laughs> and I, so it was it was freeing because she said, David, you have to give yourself permission to define this for yourself. And no one had ever presented it to me that way. That's such an interesting perspective. You're right, Growing up in the church, that that's the message, right, is that... Um, you know, obviously I want to live a life in alignment with God's will and not my own. But if, if one thing that I don't think is spoken in the church as much is that if you are genuinely with a pure heart pursuing truth, then, then your will has a lot more, a lot better chance of being aligned with God's will, right? So the things that seem like they might make sense to you, um, we don't have to wait for this clear, uh, burning bush symbol from God to say, yes, no, you can go pursue a career as a coach. And a well, lot of us like, is, I, I waited for that too. Well, saying I didn't mean to interrupt, but the question, they, like you just said, what is God's will? Cause every single person you ask seems to have a different definition. Yeah. You, we're not going to know. Well, I, I, I think we're not going to, we're not going to know the answer. I think when there's a lot of, I, I think imposed shame, for people saying, well, this is what I want to do. This is what I want. This is what I want for myself. And mm-hmm. we impose a lot of that shame, I think, particularly in the church to say, well, you need to put God first. And I, th- I think that's right. But I think God gives us this free will. God gives us the ability to choose. And God gives us, more importantly, gifts that are embedded in you. So you don't have to go out to the desert to find yourself. Look at <laughs> look at where you are right now. God gave you those gifts. You're where you are. You have those gifts internally already. And, yeah. and the expression of those is what we should be doing. Uh, for and, and seeking what you want is perfectly fine if it's worthy goals in alignment with those the gifts of those those values. Yeah, I think if you're pursuing that with a with a with a heart that it's in, is in alignment with the spirit. Like when I say we're not going to know the answer to what is God's will is I'm not going to get a step-by-step instruction manual it, for my own unique life experience on earth. I'm not going to get that. And, no. and if I'm waiting for God's will for my life at every turn and at every decision to be revealed to me, then I'm, I, I, I'm never going to get it. Number one. 
and I would rob myself of the ability to use my own unique gifts to learn, to grow, to develop, to overcome the challenge of not knowing, yeah, the challenge right. of the uncertainty. And, well, let me ask you, you a know, question. Let me ask you a question, Sanger. I think that this is useful. Or, or Sean, I'd love your response too, because what I was stuck with what you guys are talking about is that I was so fully convinced that if I'm going to define what I want and who I want to become, that was intrinsically selfish and wrong. Mm -hmm. That's why I didn't have permission. So what would you say to someone who, anyone who's listening now is like, David, Sean, Sanger, I, I can't, I'm not allowed to define that. I, I yeah. can't, that's selfish. The, the, I know that my heart is deceitfully wicked. I know that the dreams and desires and things, how do I know that, that what I want is God's will? It feels selfish and I don't want to be selfish. I can, I, I don't know if I can answer it for someone else, but I can say that this is how I answer it for myself, which is that some of what I, like I struggled with finding, oh, what's, what's the most, you know, passionate thing that I could pursue? What's something that is going to be obviously clear for my life. And for a while, I, like I didn't have anything. And, and I was kind of waiting in the same, similar experience as you waiting for God to tell me what to do. And it just didn't happen. And I asked a lot, <laughs> like, uh, you know, I asked very often, what, what am I supposed to be doing? And at some point it wasn't a revelation moment. Um, it wasn't an epiphany that I had at some point I came peace with the 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 life that I have, the opportunities that I have, knowing my father and the the knowledge that he shared with me in the industry that I am currently in now, that's a gift. Um, so to pursue that, although I at, at in the beginning of my career like kind of judge myself, oh that's too easy. You know, dad already taught you everything. You got a leg up on the competition. That's too easy. <laughs> You're supposed to go out and like you know, um, cut your way through the jungle by yeah, yourself, cut your way through the jungle by yourself. Cause that's what he did. And that's more admirable. And I felt judgment from others on that, but I, I think I probably put the most judgment on myself and I said, well, that, so this can't be it. And I really rejected it. Didn't want to do it. Um, so much that I picked, uh, I picked a major in college in agriculture, which has nothing to do with personal finance. I get there and I find out that the agriculture school has a financial planning program. Now that should have been in the business school, but it was in the agriculture school. Maybe that was a sign for you. And that, it was that, that was the moment where I go, okay, all right, I can't run from this forever. <laughs> but, but to say, well, I'm going to pursue, I'll pursue the thing. Like, do I get personal satisfaction out of it? Yeah. Do I, do I make money doing it? Yeah. Uh, it, it, does it, does it serve me? It, um, yeah, it's not, I'm not saying it's some noble Mother Teresa ambition that I have to change the world and, you know, um, for no personal gain at all, period. But to to honor God in the best way that I can is to use the gifts, the tools, the privileges, the opportunities, the resources, and everything that I have within my, you know, within my grasp to further something that is is aligned with what I know to be in God's favor, which I think the work that we do to improve the lives of the families that we serve is in God's favor. We're not passing out Bibles on the street corner. You know, we're not preaching uh, in uh -huh. West Africa. Uh, it doesn't have to be that direct line, but I know it's, it's, it is truth. What we're pursuing is truth. 
as a company, what we're pursuing with decidedly to say, hey, we want to help people make better decisions. Why? I can look in the mirror and say that is objectively providing good into the world. Is it the most noble and selfless good of all time? No, but it's good. I'm not putting evil out into the world. And I guess I can look at that and go, well, that seems to be God's will for my life now. I don't know if I'm answering your question articulately. No, it was good. It was good. David, David, how did you determine that, that empathy was your gift that you wanted to help put forward for other people? Through a lot of anger, Sean. (laughs) (laughs) Relatable. Um, growing up, so I, I took my first strengths finders, Clifton strengths finders. I took it the for the first time when I was 15 years old, it was shortly after, I think it was, might've been the same year that the book came out. Um, Marcus Buckingham, Clifton strengths finders. Mm-hmm. Anyone doesn't know it, it's yeah, incredible. It's great, great um, book. What was interesting to me is that over the course of the last couple, I mean, really the last 15 plus or minus years, I've taken that test three times. You want to know this at the top of the list every single time? I've taken it every five years. Empathy. And so as a kid, my top five are empathy, adaptability, includer, input, and then I always forget the last one. I think it's uh, connectedness. It's connectedness. Mm -hmm. Very relational. Okay? Yeah. I grew up in the Midwest. Midwestern boy, farm country. Dad was a vet, mom was a teacher, and hard work was like you know the men around me growing up were were men, like manly men. Yeah, <laughs> em- empathy's not getting a lot of praise in that environment. Empathy's right? not exactly at the yeah. top of the list for manly <laughs> characteristics when you're 16 years old trying to figure out who the heck you are, right? And so I had pushed this thing down for so long, feeling like it was. I was like, this is an effeminate characteristic. It's too soft. It's too nice. It's too caring. It's too like, and I had a very skewed understanding of what empathy really, really is. And so over the course of, of, of really probably about 10 years and then leading up to when I, you know, really started getting my career off the ground. And then after probably five or six years of really being in the marketplace, when she, my, my mentor named Sarah Cabra, when she had addressed this, she's like, David, I don't think you understand that you've been trying to to mitigate all of the things that are naturally hardwired in you because you you think that they're deficits and you feel like they're curses in your life. When if you would just go all in on maximizing your strengths and mitigating your weaknesses rather than the opposite. What I was trying yeah. to do is I was trying to like trying to uh, <laughs> figure out how to make all my weaknesses better, right? When I started to recognize that, I started to see that that empathy and my understanding of it was something that was severely flawed. And what do, you, what do you mean by that? So for me, empathy always meant get into the pit with people when they're having a hard time. Okay. It means if they're going through stuff, you take that on, you internalize it, and you carry it, and so they don't, so they don't feel alone. But the problem with that, especially when I, I would say being empathetic is is really most people define it through the frame of, okay, what would I do if I was in their shoes, right? What would I do if I was in their shoes? The problem with that is that that's not empathy. You're just overlaying your bias, your perspective, and how your your worldview, and you're trying to understand from their perspective rather than saying, what can I do to ask better questions to fully see, hear, and understand from their perspective? as if I were them, not me. 
we completely remove ourselves from it and step into their shoes, not trying to see like, what would I do if I was in their shoes? That's not real empathy. And for me, a lot of times it was sympathy is I would feel bad for people. They're going through a challenging time, but I would, I would always have people bring me their problems and then I would sit there with them and I would internalize it and I would take it on and then I'd be depressed. And I wondered why I was constantly depressed and constantly emotionally overwhelmed because I was taking on everyone else's stuff rather than where the fierce came to be, where I started to round out my understanding of empathy is not enabling. I realized that the majority of my life, the support, quote unquote, that I was providing for people was enabling them to stay stuck forever. It wasn't actually loving. It wasn't actually being willing to have the courage to speak the hard truth in love and to say, hey, are you looking for support or solutions? If you need support, I'm happy to, I'll be that shoulder you can cry on. Like, we'll, we'll I'll come down in the pit with you, but I'm only going to hang out down here for like five minutes and then we're both getting out of here. I used to just go wallow in the pit with them. And then my life just, it was, it was very, very emotionally taxing. And I started to recognize the best question I can ask people when they bring problems, when they're, they're dealing with stuff, when they're having a hard time, they lose a family member or they're, they're struggling in their job or their business isn't growing. The best thing I can ask is, are you looking for support or solutions? Do you need someone to hold space for you right now? Or will you give me permission to tell you everything you don't want to hear, but that you desperately need to hear right now? And will you receive that through the frame of love, knowing that I want you to win? This might hurt, but my intent, I am not trying to harm you, but I will tell you what I see. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes it makes a lot of sense. And and I think you have to have a certain level of relationship to be able to share that with somebody. And yes. They have to know that you have their best interest at heart. Yeah. Or they're coming back at you hard, right? Oh, don't say that to me, you know, and they're calling you names and then they're turning, you know, they're picking at something about media. you, you know, that you don't want to hear, right? Yeah. You know, so yeah. I I think if if you you know, sometimes I find myself having to preface that is to say, hey, you know, I don't have a dog in this fight. This is nothing to me, but here's what I'm observing. Um, yeah. Take it for what it's worth, you know, so to speak. But it's um, that's that's really good, uh, solid framework. How do you how did you take that gift of, of empathy and mm-hmm. develop into uh, kind of the fierce empathy framework? Mm-hmm. How did you systematize that as your as your mentor was suggesting? Got to put yeah. that in a in a framework. So, so I started out with with really just the basics. Like I tried to figure out in the different context how how was empathy showing up and kind of betraying me. Like I didn't want it to show up, but it was showing up because it was a gift, right? How could I turn that and recognize? Okay, there's a step by step process that I'm unconsciously following, and I need a way to get this on paper so that I can explain it to other people. And what, what I started with was, was just the basics of like sales and marketing. What was my actual step-by-step process when I would, uh, from first point of contact all the way through a closed deal, how was I handling that along the way? Like, what was I actually doing? And over time that transitioned out of all things, business, sales, marketing, operations, team, organization, organizational development. And I started really leaning into emotional intelligence and behavioral psychology and neuroscience and starting to understand more and more about how we interact as human beings and the most effective way to serve people. Because that was really my heart. I've always believed that success is found in serving people well. There's a couple of great books. Uh, one is called The Go-Giver. If anyone listening mm-hmm. has never read it, it's a phenomenal book. 
And I always wanted to be that connector. I wanted to be the person that had enough courage to say, hey, I'd love to help you. I desperately want to work with you for all the right reasons, but I am not the best fit for what you need here. I wanted to have enough courage to do that. And what I realized was that I was almost doing that by default. When I would go to consults with clients, I was never trying to sell them on anything. And the numbers, that's why she pulled out the numbers. She's like, the numbers don't lie. You're top 1% producer. What are you doing? You're not following the scripts. You're not doing what everyone else says you're supposed to do in sales. And so that process I started to map out was it, it, it comes all around this premise. When you understand that you don't understand, you'll start to understand. I'll say that again. When you understand that you don't understand, you'll start to understand. And so what yeah. I did in every single interaction with people was I just, I just literally would look for asking better questions, create trust and rapport, make sure that I'm trying to introduce humor and laughter. Like I would walk into a client's home. I'm trying to find a point of reference, something that I can draw attention to. I'm asking them about, okay, tell me what you've tried. Tell me what's working. Tell me what's not working. What are your concerns? What are your frustrations? I was never going to features and benefits. I was never trying to tell them why we were better than the competition. I was never trying to, to, to convince them that I was the best. And most often I'd get to the end of consults and I still do this to this day. And I just tell them straight up is like, here's what I can provide. I feel like this is a perfect solution for what you're looking for. But if you're looking around, shopping around, my biggest encouragement to you is this. This isn't going to go perfect. There's going to be problems. Things are going to happen. You need to go with whoever you trust and believe is going to actually take care of you when that stuff happens. If someone tells you that this is going to be perfect and it's going to go off without a hitch, <laughs> they're lying to you because we're dealing with people here. And that honesty and my desire to ask questions that framework started to develop into what's called the fierce empathy framework now. And it's more tailored towards how can you take people through a step-by-step -step process and helping starting at the foundations, seek to understand, ask better questions, and then take them step-by-step -step through, through this entire, whether it's in sales or you're just building a relationship or you're coaching someone or you're working with your spouse or you're working with your kids. How can we deploy more empathy? Because when we do that, people ultimately all they want is to feel seen, heard, and understood. And when you can create an environment where someone does feel seen, heard, and understood, sales is no longer about like selling. It simply becomes giving and receiving. If you want to give me your money, I will give you this in exchange. And it becomes a beautiful opportunity, not only in business, but also in our relationships when we create those environments where people feel seen, heard, and understood. And some people are listening to this and they're going, oh, okay. All right. So here's how I increase my sales. Is I pretend like <laughs> not I don't care, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's not. It, it it can't be used that way, um, yeah. Because part of you detaching yourself from the agenda you had for the interaction of I'm going to get them to buy this is mm -hmm. part of why that is successful is because it's genuine, it's true, and people recognize it even if they don't think it. Right? They they know that's that's really the case is that you're not there just to get them to, you know, to spend the money. Um, and I think when we, when we approach those conversations without, without an agenda, uh, then people will open up because they're less, you know, they're not on guard. They're not waiting yeah. for the real us to reveal ourselves. Um, I had a, somebody told me forever ago, this was a couple of years ago, you know, the, 
best way to be empathetic is to not have an agenda. And I was like, okay, sure, fine. Well, it was one of the things Eric Maddox is talked about on the, uh, yeah, we had yeah. Eric Maddox on the podcast, uh, I don't know, a year and a half ago or so. And he was the army interrogator who found Saddam Hussein. And his big thing was looking at, 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 at empathetic listening and asking more questions, just like you said. And, and that's the point he made, yeah. Sanger, is set aside your own agenda so you can listen. Better. He said he set aside his own agenda in those interactions and inter- interrogating the terrorists, and they would simply tell him everything he ever wanted to know. He didn't even have yeah. to ask. And so I, I took that into a, a client meeting like the next day. Mm-hmm. And the purpose of the client meeting was, one, we were going to talk about what's important to her. This was like a second meeting. We're going to talk about what's important to her. And, uh, I'm going to quote her a fee (laughs) I, and that was it. Like, and, um, I, we started the exercise on her values and it's, she started to meander and go kind of off track of the exercise. And now previously I would have been like, nope, let's tap that in. Like, let's do the exercise the way that it's designed. You know, let's stick to, we got a time frame here. It was a Friday afternoon. She came into my office at 4.30. We didn't leave till 7.30. She laughed. I laughed. She cried. I cried a little bit. And she paid me more than anybody had ever paid me since. <laughs> like So it was like, wow, I got everything I wanted out of this. I was able to really connect with this woman. And she feels seen and heard. I know her in a way that I don't know any of my other clients. And all I did was not really not care what happened in the conversation you ask better questions and that that caused me to ask better questions yeah it's detaching from those outcomes and so for anyone that is listening you're right Sanger, is that this cannot be a tactic that'll be one of the fastest ways you'll crash and burn is because people can smell honesty they really can when you get into a room with someone and uh it's a feeling it's energetic and it's very challenging to detach from those outcomes because especially there's a there's a lot of people, a lot of businesses right now in particular that are struggling, that are having a hard time and they've slipped into fear and scarcity and doubt. And so their next meal is dependent on whether or not they're closing their next sale, right? So it's really hard if you're in a situation where you desperately need to grow your business. And so well, my encouragement to anyone that is, is listening is whether you are struggling in business or not, like even when you're winning and you're doing really well, if you can detach from that outcome and you focus simply like for me, how I, how I view it is this way. When someone says, can you help me? My first response is, I don't know. (laughs) And it catches people off guard. Like, what do you mean? You don't know. It's like, can you help me solve this problem? It's like, I have no idea. I don't know anything about you. (laughs) And an unseasoned salesperson be like, oh yeah, we can fix your problem. We got whatever you need. Come on on down. Come on down. We got the lowest cost. (laughs) Anything that you need. Right. And and so it's operating from that golden rule is when I think about the interactions I've had with people that I love doing business with, that I'm more than happy to give my money to. It's the ones who caused me to feel like I'm actually seen. Right. Yeah. And so what you did really, really well, Sanger, I think that's the hardest thing is that you can't rush these things. But when you can detach from the outcome and you're trying to ask questions to better understand if the solution you provide is the best fit for them. What's beautiful is that, as I'm sure happened, you might not even realize it. People will tell you exactly what they want and exactly what they need. And literally all you have to do, if you're paying attention, is repeat back to them everything that they just said. And their their eyes will go wide like, 
oh my gosh, I've never had someone who understands my needs and my wants more than you. And you're thinking, I just repeated back everything you just said. Yeah. Because that's all that it is. When you're really actively empathetically listening and you hear what people are saying and you repeat back to them what they just said. I love you talked about the Saddam Hussein thing. Chris Voss talks about this and never split the difference is when you can repeat back the last part of the sentences that people are saying, it causes them to feel seen, heard and understood, and it makes them open up. And it's so much easier to do business because then people are more than happy to give you their money. And it's no longer trying to convince or persuade. You're just saying, yeah, I, I mean, if these are your problems, this is what you want. This is what you need. This is a way that we can help you solve that. Here's how we can prepare for your future. Here's how we can take care of your finances, everything that you guys do for your clients. Yeah. The, um, the struggle I think that some people might have is the detachment. Mm -hmm. well, I don't know how I did that. I'm not saying I've mastered it by any means, but there are things that I used to care about a lot that I don't care about anymore. There are outcomes that used to matter to me a lot that I, that don't matter to me anymore. And those are the areas where I succeed the most. And mm -hmm. like getting a new client to me was something that really mattered a lot. And now oh, yeah. I go into those meetings like, Dude, hey, you like, I, I don't know if we're a good fit for you. I, I'm i not convinced yet. By the end of this call, I might be. We might uh -huh. have to talk again. I'm not sure uh, if I'll refer you to someone else that might be a better fit, if if that makes sense. And, and I don't care that I'm not going to make any money that way. And I don't know why I, like, I don't know what happened in my life to make me feel that way. Um but I wish I knew, I wish I knew what it was so then I could, I could, I, I, can, tell you, I can tell you what it was for me. I, it happened my, almost the first month I was in the business. Uh, and I was talking with this uh, prospective client who was going to hire us to do asset management work for them. And I made the statement because this is what my sales manager told me to say is, you know, come with us and we can improve your investment portfolio returns mm -hmm. and that's what he told me to say so i said it because i didn't know any better <laughs> and, and this person stopped and this is where i learned so i learned this early on yeah and this person said sean you haven't seen my portfolio yet how do you know how could you possibly know if you could do better <laughs> and i was like well that's uh you got a point there you know yeah. and i never did that again and i started asking questions you know what do you want out of a portfolio what do you want it to do for you you know uh what concerns do you have i started asking better questions and kind of grew but it was that defining moment that that helped me see helped me see that so, but did that cause you to be detached from outcomes? No, it, I, you still have to have the outcome, but if you can get to that outcome, honestly, I don't, I don't, I don't care in a client, in a first client meeting with a prospective client. I really don't like, what do you mean? You don't care. I don't, it doesn't make it just what change, doesn't care at the, outcome? it does not change a, anything for me if they hire me or not. Oh no, no, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah, you 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 should be detached from needing to s sell somebody. You never want to go into a position saying I I need to force this person into that that outcome. What what I was saying is that that your objective is if your objective is to help that person, you want to ask the right questions so you could determine if you're the right person to help them. Yeah. Well, so but David, what did what did you do that allowed you to 
detach from the outcomes more? So I think a lot of it had to do with, uh, again, that defining who I wanted to become, because as I started to define who I wanted to become, not just in my sales role, not just in my business, but as a husband, as a father, it started dictating and determining every part of my life that needed to change. And that's one of the things I love about what you guys are doing here with this podcast is that our decisions affect everything. And I think so many people are asking the question, like, what do I need to do? What do I need to do to get better in sales? What do I need to do to improve my marriage? What do I need to do to get healthier? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? And it's not that that's a bad question. I just think it's not the best first question. Mm -hmm. I think the best first question is who do you want to become in whatever role you're looking at? Because when you can start to define that with clarity as a salesperson, right? For example, or, t- or as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, if we define that, say, this is the type of entrepreneur I want to be known as. This is how I want to be seen. This is how I want to be talked about. This is how I want to carry myself. This is the impact that I want to have. This is the legacy that I want to write. This is, you know, all of these things that we get crystal clear. Then what you need to do starts to get crystal clear. Yeah. Because now every single action has to come into alignment with who you said that you would be. And if it's not, it's a hard no. And so when you go into a client interaction and you say, this is the, this is the type of salesperson, or this is the type of entrepreneur that I am going to be. I'm going to be known as the person who is honest, who operates from a place of integrity, who is willing to own up to the fact that, yeah, we cannot solve every single problem, <laughs> yeah. right? We don't, we don't have a magic potion back here that can fix all of it. Uh, we know what we're good at. We know what we're not. And if we're not the best fit, I'm going to do everything within my power to help you find the solution that you're looking for. That's who I want to be known as. And so when it comes to detaching from these outcomes, just like Sean said, it's more about, okay, I need to understand you at the deepest level possible. Because if I can understand where you're at and what like what makes you tick and what what are you concerned about? What are your you know frustrations? What are your fears? What's going on here? Why do you want this solution? When you can understand that, then you can, in good conscience, present the solution, the prescription to whatever that problem is, and you feel really, really, really good about it. And so for anyone that is trying to figure out how how to detach healthily, because the truth is, as entrepreneurs and business owners or salespeople, we're always going to have sales in the back of our mind a little bit. Like it's always going to be kind of hanging out back there. I think the best way to get it as far back as possible is to is to help is saying my number one job is to help and i don't know if i can help so i need to ask you a bunch of questions and if you're cool with that let's dive into this and then i'll let you know whether or not i feel like this solution is the best fit or not and i feel like people just are starving for that in the day and age that we live in because trust is so severely lacking and, and everyone's trying to front and, and we see it on influencers and social yeah. media and all that stuff right we're a very untrusting culture right now. And I don't feel, I don't foresee it getting much better unless like there's some significant changes. So the best way to develop trust is honesty, vulnerability, integrity, and asking better questions. Because when someone asks us questions, we're like, oh, like they actually care? Yeah. Interesting rapport immediately. Yeah. Right? Uh, the interesting, one of the most interesting learnings of my past maybe 12 months is something that you just hit on. So you said, what we have to do is first determine who we want to become before we determine what we want to do or how we're going to get there or whatever. And um, my learning has been that 
running a business, all of the lessons of how to run a successful business are the same lessons of how to run a successful life, right? When you start your business, you don't talk, you don't start with what are you going to sell? You start with who would this business be? Why does this business exist? You start with that with your business, right? What's the very first thing you're going to do? You're going to come up with a purpose statement. You're going to come up with values. You're going to come with a, up with a BHAG. You're going to come up with like an aim, an aim. What's the biggest thing that we could conceive of? That's our BHAG, right? That's the, it's the greatest thing that we could possibly imagine ever doing and becoming. And why is that important to us? Well, it's important to us because of these values. And then with our life, we go, what should I do next month? <laughs> what should I, what should I do? Where should I go? What job should I get? It's like, well, who do you want to be as a human? And then once you've answered that as a human, then it doesn't right. matter what your job is. It doesn't matter where you're located. It doesn't matter what hobbies you pursue. It doesn't matter the things you do in your free time because you will figure out all of those things that align you to who you want to become. If you start your business with who do we want to become, then it doesn't matter what you sell. It doesn't matter who you hire. You're going to figure all those things out. Yeah, one of the things about business is it, obviously a business has to make money to exist, but the purpose of the business can't be to make money any more than the purpose of life is to breathe. I mean, yeah. you need to breathe to, to live, but you, you can't just exist to make money. So it's you've got to have that greater purpose. When what when you go through and determine that for your, you know, yourself, David, how did you go through that process of deciding who you wanted to become? This is critically important to all of your future decisions. It, it's mm -hmm. the keystone decision, right? Yeah. Is who do you mm -hmm. want to become? How did you go through that decision process? Remember, we talked about that guy right up there. The uh, the, knew, the twelve point buck that. behind you is that a, is that a deer I, or I, an elk? I, it's actually a stag. So, okay, okay. No, so I was wrong it. twice. <laughs> elk stag they're pretty wow. darn close um so what i started to i i started to go through this process of uh, you know again when i started asking the question who do i want to become i didn't know i had no idea i didn't know how to answer the question and what i started to realize is that i needed to compartmentalize i needed to look at who i wanted to become as an entrepreneur who i wanted to become as a father who i wanted to become as a husband who i wanted to become in my health and in my body who I wanted, like all these different areas. And so what I started to do is I, I actually, uh, a very useful book that I read um, uh, is called The Alter Ego Effect by Todd Herman. Yeah. And this principle of understanding alter egos is is kind of what the backing is in the research between courage and confidence, right? So courage and confidence we know are two very different things. People are like, well, just be confident. Well, confidence is only established once you have a proven track record. That's the only way that you're actually confident. Courage is very different. Courage is what you have to take when you've never done it before. <laughs> You're like, I have no idea what yeah. I'm doing, but I'm going <laughs> to be courageous. And so courage is where we almost, it's like the pretend confidence, right? And what I attribute it to is, is our kids. Like if you, you know, uh, I'm sure Sean, well, Sanger, we're going to use you for an example. Okay. When Sanger was a little wee man, right? <laughs> there were times, right? I've got a five-year-old, a three-year-old and a one-year-old. When I see my kids tap into imagination, it's one of the most beautiful things you can experience as, as an adult, is seeing a kid get lost in imagination. And this book, what it started to outline was this basic understanding of like, if you could be whoever you wanted to be, and you could put together this alternate like personality, what would the attributes be? What would the characteristics be? Who would you be if you could take off all the baggage, 
all the pain, all the trauma, all of the stuff, all the victimhood, who would you be if you had no limitations? And so in this book, it has you kind of go through this process of, of crafting your alter ego. And so my alter ego through this process became, it was an amalgamation of a few different things. Number one, Captain America. So I had Captain America, Daniel from the Bible, a stag, and Aragorn from Lord of the Rings. So my name was Captain Daniel Staghorn. So I had to <laughs> nice. literally, I just made this name, Captain Daniel Staghorn. And what I started to do is I had to start to step into those roles in every circumstance. So when I would stand on stage, I was privileged to, to do like some speaking. I was a speaker and head trainer for Tony Robbins for a while. And when I would step on stage, talk about like intimidation, one of the most well-known personal development, motivational speakers on the planet, you're supposed to be stepping on stage representing this individual. I, <laughs> I was not confident. I had to have tremendous courage. So what I would do when I would step on that stage is I would think, how would Captain America handle this right now? How would Rogers, Captain Rogers, actually step into this right now? And how would he carry himself? How would he speak? How would he, he talk? And so in practicing, like the stag, for example, for me is more about my family. It's this presiding, right? It's this presiding regal kingly presence. It's like I'm overlooking and taking care of my family. And when I would show up for my kids and for my wife, I would have to like turn on this trigger and remember, okay, I need to step into who I want to be. I'm Captain Daniel Stagger. And I know this sounds hokey. But when you imagine enough and consistently, you actually start to, the research is now proven, you start to rewire your brain. Your neurochemistry change. Yeah. The neuroplasticity in the brain, you start to actually start to believe these things about yourself until one day you wake up and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't even recognize myself. I have become everything that I said that I would be. Now I've got to redefine success and who I want to become next. I need to create a new version but for me, it was this process of taking courageous action and becoming extraordinarily accountable to be the father I wanted to be, to be the husband I wanted to be, to fix my health, to build the business. And so those steps really came down to getting crystal clear and writing out these things. And I'll give a quick little exercise, two exercises for anyone listening that you can use to, uh, to help you with this. The first one is you take a sheet of paper and you divide it in the middle. And on the left-hand side, you write down every single area of your life that you're dissatisfied with as it pertains to you personally. What do you not like about yourself? What are you dissatisfied with? What are you frustrated with? And on the opposite side of the page, you write one of two things. You either write what you want in your life. And if you don't know, because the average person doesn't know, we can list all the things we don't want, but very few of us can name what we do want. If you can, write down what you do want instead of this. If you can't, just write down the opposite. If you write down the opposite of whatever you wrote on the left-hand side of the page, it'll give you a clue or an indication of what you need to start aligning with, as Sanger said earlier, aligning actions and behaviors and thinking patterns and, and mentors and modeling. That's exercise number one. It'll help you see the areas of your life that you can focus on changing. But then the other one was writing out my perfect day. I sat down yes. one day and I, I, I wrote out my perfect day from the moment I woke up until the moment I went to bed. And guys, when I wrote this thing down, I laughed. I was like, ain't nobody on the planet have a day like this. There's no way that this could ever happen. Well, and what you have to do is you have to put work and play and family, all of it together. You can't just say my perfect day would be to go to Disneyland. Yeah, sitting on the beach <laughs> like, for 12 hours. No, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. You gotta do a real day. 
you have to do a real day. And when I wrote it down, I laughed. I was like, there's no way this is ever possible. Because when I wrote it down, guys, I was working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, full-time corporate. Like there's no way. And about two years later, I was sitting in in my house on my chair and I opened up this journal entry and I, I had forgotten about it, honestly. I'd completely forgotten about it. And I'm sitting there, my kids are playing on the floor. We just had lunch together. And I'm reading this and I start weeping because what I was reading on the page was what I was living in that moment. Everything that I had said that I wanted to create in my life, as far as the newness, the lifestyle I wanted to have, who I wanted to be. Like one of the things I wrote down on that page was I want breakfast, lunch, and dinner with my kids. I don't know how that doesn't even seem realistic or possible. But I want breakfast, lunch, and dinner with my kids. This is when I want to wake up. I want to go to the gym. Then I want to come home. I want to work out with my... Like I had everything listed out. And I opened up that journal entry and realized that had actually been made manifest or created in my life because of two years prior, I had made the intention, the decision to lean into those things, but I had completely forgotten about it. And so those two exercises defining... Again, the piece of paper, like where are you dissatisfied and what would you want instead? And then what would your perfect day look like? The answers and the awareness and the lessons you draw from these exercises will help you start to formulate and craft this vision and this version, as you guys mentioned earlier, think and grow rich, right? All the great personal development books define an aim. If you don't define the aim and the outcome, you can't hope to be aligned with anything other than your feelings and your feelings will betray you a lot. Yeah. (laughs) The, the writing out my perfect day, I did that three or three and a half years ago. And the, the prompt was not only, it wasn't just my perfect day. It was my perfect day five years from now. So I'm, I'm almost, I'm not even, well, I'm not even almost to the point where it would have been five years, but I've done at least 80% of those things. And my life looks 80% or more like the life that just like you thought I thought was silly. It was like, there's no way. I mean, I included stuff that I thought was just, no, I'm, nobody's ever going to, I'm never going to do this as long. Not even when I retire, am I going to be able to do this? And sure mm-hmm. enough, I mean, within months, those things started happening. And some of that is is like, when you imagine it, you've allowed yourself to believe it. My jujitsu coach told me uh, that he, since he was a kid and started wrestling all the way to when he started competing jujitsu to when he was a professional fighter. Um, you know, in the UFC and things like that, he would visualize his match. And what he told me is that your brain doesn't know the difference between your conscious mind and your unconscious mind. So if you're sitting there imagining yourself hitting this move over and over and over and over, it's like, it doesn't even really matter if you can do it against your opponent. Your brain thinks you can now. And so now your brain treats that just the same as it would a conscious experience of you actually doing it. So you're more confident, you're more able to hit the move. That can be applied to, there's studies that show that's applied to weightlifting, where visualizing lifting the weight will allow you to lift a weight heavier than if you did not visualize. And I think that that's true with life. It's like visualizing the life that you want allows you to start making the steps to bring that life uh, to reality. David, thanks so much for being here. This was a great conversation. I I mean, I really love the message that you're putting out into the world. I think that it's... um, it's improving lives and it, it, we really need, we need that in our culture right now. So thanks for being willing to share it with us. Where can people find you and the work that you're doing? 
Yeah. Thank you guys. Thank you, Sanger and Sean. It was an honor to be here. So anyone can find me on social media. You can Google me. You can go to davidwaldy.com. I've got a unique name, so it's really, it's really not too hard to find me. Just type David Waldy in Google and you'll, you'll end up there. <laughs> Thanks again, David, for being with us. Thank you guys. I could have talked with David for another good hour. Yeah, he's a super cool guy. <laughs> it was uh, really interesting, really uh, aligned with the way that, you know, we, we think about a lot of stuff. And he said some things brilliantly. My takeaway from the discussion with David is that there is a keystone decision we have to make that informs all of the other decisions. And that is who do, who do we want to be? And deciding that helps you decide all the other things. I was reading a story the other day about a uh, British rowing coach. He said to his team, he said, when we're looking at making decisions about our training, about our behaviors away from training, about how we treat this boat, the decision I want you to ask yourself is, will that decision make this boat go faster? And if it doesn't make that boat go faster, don't do it. So does this exercise make the boat go faster? Does you deciding to go to this party make this boat go faster? Do you deciding to do this make the boat go faster? And if it doesn't, don't do it. And it was really helpful for me when you look at what is a keystone decision that will inform all your other decisions. My biggest takeaway was the very first point that David made, which is to make people what you think they should be, but to extract what's in them that they cannot yet see. And he shared the story about his, um, you know, in his corporate sales role, how someone said, hey, your, your biggest skill is empathy. I started to reflect on the coaches that made the most meaningful impact in my life. And they always saw something in me, some sort of potential that I was unable to see for myself. So that I think that's our role, not only as coaches, because um, not all of us are coaches. I don't think I am a coach, but I'm I'm a leader for my clients and for my um, for my employees, and it's my job both for my clients and my employees to see something that they can't see within them. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly Podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.